If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, and as we continue here in our study of of this minor prophet, we are, are drawing very close to the end. This morning, we're going to be just looking at the first two verses of Habakkuk chapter 3, just the first two verses, um, and then just a couple more Sundays uh, before we finish this book up. Uh, but it's been deeply, at least for me personally, it's been deeply um, a deep ministering to my soul. Uh, it has helped me in, in many ways of just learning to trust the Lord more and, and learning as we can see the parallels between Habakkuk's time and our time of just this resolved trust and renewal of faith uh, in God's providences and is His plans. So if you found your way there, Habakkuk chapter 3, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Habakkuk chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigonoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You can be seated this morning. We find here in these opening verses an easy descriptor of, of what's happening here, and it's found there in the first two verses, of first two words of, cha- of verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Now, you'll recall, if you go back, this is really how the, the, the beginning of the book was. The beginning of the book was the oracle which Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So we've, we've worked through this, this systematic event of Habakkuk trying to resolve in his heart and his mind the things which he saw happening in the nation of Judah. Uh, you'll remember that this book opened with the prophet's heart cry to God. Uh, he had looked around at the nation of Judah and he had saw the wickedness that abounded. Uh, he looked around and he saw just so much idolatry, so much wickedness, so much violence. But the interesting thing was, was what Habakkuk was seeing was not just happening among the heathen, not just happening among the lost world, but was also happening among the people of God. And this is what grieved Habakkuk the most. He understood, just as we do in our time, that lost people, people who are not in Christ, are going to act like people who are not in Christ. We can't expect sinful people to act like lost, to act like saved people. Lost people will act like lost people. So we shouldn't be surprised by that, especially for us as we look around the world and we see what's happening around us. But what grieved Habakkuk the most was that God's own people, the chosen nation of Israel, the people of Judah, were acting as wickedly as the world was. They were doing the same types of things, saying the same types of things, acting in the same kinds of ways. And so the the opening chapter of this book is is Habakkuk's heart cry to God, pleading with God that God would send a revival to the nation of Judah. He's saying, God, would you come in and, and have an awakening among your people? Would you come in and do something to change their hearts and to bring them back to where they need to be before you? It's a prayer that we have probably even own prayed in, in our own nation, right? We look around, we see the things that are happening, that are happening in the world, and it grieves us, but then we even look at the very church in America, and we see the church around the world, and we see things happening inside the church, and the way that supposed people who call themselves Christians live their lives, and we pray, God, would you send a revival? Would you send an awakening to this nation and to the world to bring people back to you? So Habakkuk cried out because he looked around and he saw all this wickedness, and it... it, it burdened his heart to have to watch it. 
And so he, he lamented to God, God, why aren't you doing something? When are you going to do something? How long do I have to watch all of this unfold? And you remember the Lord sent Habakkuk an answer, but it was far beyond what Habakkuk could have expected. He said, not only am I going to answer your prayer, Habakkuk, I'm going to do it in a way that you would not believe even if I told you. He says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to bring a renewal to my people, but I'm first going to have to bring correction to them. Renewal, revival could not come without correction for the things that they had done wrong. And God says, I'm going to send the Babylonians. Now, for those of you who who haven't been with us for the entirety of this book, you need to understand that the Babylonians were the most wicked, idolatrous, evil, violent nation that existed on the face of the earth at the time. They had risen to power. They had defeated the Assyrians. They had defeated the Egyptians. They had amassed a great empire amongst themselves. There was no one that was as feared in the land as the Babylonians. And God said, I'm going to send the Babylonians in to Judah. They're going to destroy everything. They're going to take you captive and carry you away for 70 years. And Habakkuk stood back and he you can almost imagine the, the open mouth gasp that he would have had. He just stood there with, with jaw dropped. God, how could you do this? Chapter 2, Habakkuk goes back to the Lord and complains again, but this time his displeasure is in the Lord's plan. He says, God, how can you use a nation that wicked? He says, yeah, yeah God, sure, sure, we've done things that are wrong, but, but, but the nation of Babylon, they're, they're far more wicked than we are. How could you use a nation like that to come in and to destroy your people and to bring them back? I just don't understand it. But you remember, as we looked last week, the end of chapter 2 is God helping Habakkuk to understand that this is necessary that he's going to redeem his people. He's going to bring them back to where he needs to be, but he's going to do it through the Babylonians. But that in the end, justice would be accomplished. That in the end, the Babylonians would fall. In the end, God would reign supreme and the Babylonians themselves would suffer the consequences of their evil actions. They would ultimately be destroyed. Israel would gain the victory and God in the end would be glorified. So we've been able to watch this beautiful mixture of of the prophet's lament and in him waiting to hear what God would say and then his response back to God. And now we come to this place here, drawing to the end of this book, where now that God has spoken, the prophet responds accordingly. Notice at verse 20 at the end of chapter 2. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Now, this is God speaking. He's speaking through the prophet here, but God is saying, the Lord, I'm in my holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before me. Why why does he say it in such a way? Because when God has spoken and God has given his truth, it's not up to us to tell God what we think about it. It's not up to us to give our opinion to God on whether we think it's a good idea or a bad idea. What he's saying, he says, I am God and you need to trust me. You need to be silent before me. And what's interesting is though all this debate has happened before. That Habakkuk has been going back and forth with God, but now that God has established, he says, now Habakkuk, you understand the totality and the fullness of what I'm doing. You need to stand in silence. And Habakkuk responds in the only way that he can, and that is through prayer. That's the only way that we can do it. Whereas in the beginning, the attitude of the prophet was 
somewhat contentious, perhaps bordering on anger, now we see here a completely different attitude. The contention has been settled, the uncertainty, the anger has been stilled, and the raised voice quietened into a steady speech. Habakkuk here responded in the only way that one can, once the voice of God has spoken so clearly and so precisely, he responds by prayer. And that's really the entirety of chapter 3 is a prayer. It's a prayer that's given by Habakkuk as he comes to a full understanding of God's deliverance of his people and how God's actions are going to take place. This prayer is held by many commentators as as perhaps one of the, the greatest in the Old Testament. Many listed alongside a lot of the greatest psalms that we would know, but really it's a prayer and a psalm that is almost, not, I won't say forgotten, but really overlooked because it's not alongside of the other psalms in the book of Psalms. It's not in the other places where we might to expect to find something like this. Now this verse plainly tells us there in verse 1 that it's a prayer, but it also comes with an instruction. It says, according to Shigianoth. Now, this word is broadly debated uh, as to its exact translation. It's actually used only in one other place uh, in Psalm chapter 7. But it's agreed to by all that it's some type of musical direction for a worship leader. Uh, it's the, the style of music or, the, or the, 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 the pace at which the music is to be sung. And this is also supported by the end of chapter 3. If you see there at the end of verse 19, it says, "...for the choir director on my stringed instruments." So what's interesting here is that this prayer of Habakkuk was was given either by the prophet himself or soon after to be used as a song of worship and praise. It's It's a prayer of Habakkuk as he comes to the understanding of what's going to happen to the nation of Judah, that they are going to be punished, they are going to be destroyed, they are going to be carried off into captivity. But he responds with such a beautiful way in remembering what God has done and what God is going to do, and at the end that God will be glorified. It's amazing to think that this prayer, this song, would have been sung by Habakkuk himself, that it would have been sung by the citizens of Judah during the exile as they were carried off to Babylon, perhaps even as they're having to march there, as they're having to walk there, as they're in exile. Perhaps it was well known by Daniel. Now, we can only assume maybe perhaps he sang it in the lion's den. Now, we don't know the specifics. But we do know that this is a song readily sung by God's people. It's, it's carefully written, which is interesting because when we often think of prayer, we don't often think of prayer as being carefully articulated. We oftentimes think of prayer as really spontaneous and, and perhaps unplanned conversation. Somebody calls on you to pray, and so you stop, you bow your head, and you begin to pray out of, out of what's in your heart. You get up here on Sunday morning, some of us, we come up, we pray before the offering, we pray before the sermon. I pray what is in my heart, what is coming out from the things that I've studied or the things that I've thought about this week. But what we see here in this prayer of Habakkuk is this is a carefully articulated prayer. Habakkuk sat down and thought about this prayer as he wrote it out. Because the the phrasing and the methodology by which he's so precise, it's a carefully planned prayer. I've heard somebody say before, you know, I said, well, you know, if you plan your prayer, it's not really from God. But I don't agree with that. I think there are times for spontaneous prayers when we pray from our hearts, but I also think there are times when what we are wanting to say needs to be so clear that we sit down and we put it on paper and we lay it out before the Lord. 
The same God, the same way that God can speak to us or speak through us in a spontaneous way, He can do it in a clear, concerted plan of prayer as well. And we're thankful, right? We're thankful that Habakkuk thought about this prayer so much that he took the time to write it down, that he took the time to plan it out. Because now, several thousand years later, here we sit in 2023, able to read his prayer and to be encouraged and to be strengthened and to be challenged by it. I want you to notice as well, the reverence by which Habakkuk responds. He responds through prayer because it's the only option that he had, but he also responds with reverence. Look at verse two. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you and I fear. He had clearly heard what the Lord was going to do. His uncertainty had been wiped away. In the very beginning, he was praying, Lord, will you send revival? Will you send an awakening? Will you redeem your people back to you? But now he knew what was going to happen. In the beginning, he he couldn't understand. He couldn't see how God would accomplish this. And now, even though he, he struggles with fully grasping why God would do it in this way, he's confident in God's plan. He's confident that God is going to do everything that he said and that at the end, God's promises would come to pass. He didn't allow his frustrations to occlude his listening clearly to the Lord. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who perhaps you had a disagreement with and and they're certain about something and you're certain about something? And as you're trying to explain to them the reasonings of why you did something, you can tell they're not really listening to you because they're just planning on how they're going to respond back to you when you're finished. They're not listening to your explanation. They're not listening to what you're saying. All they're thinking about in their mind is, well, when he gets done, I'm going to defend myself. It would have been very easy for Habakkuk to have done that here. Because he, he still thinks, Lord, you know, I, I don't understand why you would do that. But as he stood there, he did not allow his ideas, he did not allow his own opinions or his own emotions to cloud the clear teaching of the Lord. When God had finished speaking, Habakkuk stood back and he said, I may not understand it, but I trust it. I may not grasp it, but I believe it. And brothers and sisters, we have to do the same thing. There are going to be times in our life where God speaks to us through his word in such a way that we don't understand it, but we have to trust it. We don't grasp what he's doing, but we have to believe and have faith that he's doing everything he said he would do. There will be times when events happen in our life. Habakkuk is going to watch the nation of Judah suffer tremendously. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, but he has to be willing to stand back and say, I don't understand it, and it's hard, but I trust the Lord is doing his perfect work, and he's doing exactly what he said he would do. There will be times for us when things will happen in our life, difficulty, sorrow, trial, and tribulation. But what has God promised to us? It was in that song we just sang a little earlier. God has promised to work all things for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That doesn't just mean some things. It doesn't just mean the easy things. It means all things. Everything that we face in this life, every difficulty, every challenge, God will work it out for our good. 
Habakkuk came with a, a listening ear. He was careful to hear what God would say. Matthew Henry said this, those that would rightly order their speech to God must carefully observe and lay before them his speech to them. He says, for if we turn a deaf ear to God's word, we can expect no other than he should turn a deaf ear to our prayers. If we're not willing to hear what God is saying, if we're not willing to believe what God has said to us, how would we expect God to answer our own prayers? If we're not willing to listen to him, Matthew Henry says, we should not expect him to listen to us. He says, let all the earth be silent before him. It's when the recognition of the word of God comes to us that we stand back and trust. Now, there's only two responses when it comes to the revelation of God's plan. There are things that we know broadly, and there are things that we learn incrementally. We talk about what God's plan for our life is. We can turn to the Bible, and we can see some things very clearly that teach us how we're to live our life. We're to love one another. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a very clear, broad direction that God has given us. There are some things we learn incrementally through life. Some events we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen to us personally tomorrow, two weeks from now, a year from now. But when those things happen, we have two responses. Verse 4 of chapter 2 tells us, he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous one will live by his faith. When those things happen, when difficulty comes, the righteous ones, those who are God's people, live by faith. Does it say live by knowledge? Because we don't know what's going to happen. We live by faith and trust that we know the one who knows everything. That because he knows everything, we can trust in him. Because he has preordained everything, we can trust in him. Because he's going to work all things out, we can trust in him. He heard the report. He listened to what God was saying, and he responded accordingly. Let me ask you this question this morning, brothers and sisters. Are you listening to God's word to you? And I'm not talking about hearing some voice in the middle of the night speaking to you. I'm talking about are you hearing God's word through the reading of his word? This is how God speaks to us. If you want to hear God speak out loud, then just read your Bible out loud and you'll hear it. God speaks to us through his word. So are you listening to his word? And the question is, if you're listening to his word, now are you responding to his word? Are you hearing the report and doing what God has asked you to do as a child of God? Notice what Habakkuk did when he heard the report. He says, I've heard the report about you and I fear. Now that he understood everything that there was to know about what God was going to do, Habakkuk was driven to fear. Now, this is not a a fear of, of terror. When we use the word fear in the English language, it's usually only related to one thing. We think about some type of scary movie, some type of experience that we had, and we think of fear as a type of terror, which is something that we want to avoid. But the word fear here is not used of of being afraid of punishment, but it's the kind of reverential awe that comes when one truly understands the holiness, the justice, the righteousness of God. When one truly understands who God is and how powerful he is and everything about him, the only response is to stand back and just to say, Lord, you're holy. 
I, I, I can do nothing. I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to, to say. All I can do is just to stand back and say how wonderful you are. He says, I, I fear I'm in awe of you. It's a holy fear. One commentator said, this is not a servile fear, but a holy fear which endureth forever. Not one which love casts out, but which it brings in, where angels praise, dominions adore, and powers stand at all at the majesty of the eternal God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. When we understand the power and the majesty of God, we should stand in just reverential awe of him. He's quiet. He's reverent. He's standing here looking at the Lord and understanding his glory and his splendor. But how could the prophet have come to such a change of heart and attitude? Because how we see the prophet responding here is a lot different than how we saw him responding in chapters 1 and 2. Well, what happened was Habakkuk stopped comparing the nation of Judah against the world and instead compared the holiness of God against all of them. See, what Habakkuk had been guilty of doing was saying, well, Lord, look at how wicked the Babylonians are. Now, the nation of Judah is bad, but we're not as bad as they are. So surely we should get some kind of preferential treatment, right? Surely we should, we should get some kind of favor because we're not as bad as they are. It's, it's their fault that things have gotten the way that they are. But what Habakkuk was doing now was saying, God, you're holy, you're just, you're perfect, you're righteous. And in comparison to you, we're all in trouble. In comparison to you, it doesn't matter whether it's the nation of Judah or the nation of Babylon, we all deserve your punishment and your wrath. He stopped believing that his sin and the sin of the nation of Judah was less offensive to God than the sin of the Babylonians. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he's returned to the realm of spiritual truth, the holiness of God, sin in man and in the world, and so now he's able to see things in an entirely new light. He is now concerned for the glory of God and nothing else. As the prophet was humbled before the Lord, he realized that no self-righteousness could remain. We find here the prophet not trying to make excuses. We find him not trying to compare and contrast Babylon with Judah, but now he is just solely standing before the Lord and realizing that there's nothing that can be said because God is working perfectly. Judah deserved what was coming to them. They deserved it because they had sinned against God. There's no try to, way to sugarcoat it or explain it away. It was a just punishment from a just God. God says, I'm going to do what I've said I'm going to do. As human beings, we can often be guilty of falling into the same trap that Habakkuk was plagued by initially. We encounter a problem in our lives, and we blame those who seem to be more sinful than ourselves. We look at the things that they possess or that they've done and, and think that because they are, in our minds, more wicked or evil, that it's, it's their fault. This could even be happening inside the church. Um, James Boyce pointed out in his commentary that 
even as conservative churches, we can oftentimes be guilty of this. That we look at the state of the church and we say, oh, well, look at that liberal church over there and look at all the things that they're teaching and how horrible and how wicked it is. But isn't it great that we have sound theology over here? And we think that because we have sound theology that that means that God deserves and gives us or should give us a blessing or should give us something more. And he shared a story that I wanted to share with you this morning. And he's talking about uh, R.A. Torrey. Many of you are probably familiar with R.A. Torrey. And he says, R.A. Torrey tells on one occasion when he was speaking on prayer, a note was put into his hands that read, Dear Mr. Torrey, I'm in a great perplexity. I've been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years, have tried to be consistent all the time. I've been a superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years, an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it for me? Tory replied, it is perfectly easy to explain it. This man thinks that because he's been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer. He's really praying in his own name, and God will not hear prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thought that we have any claims upon God. If we got what we deserved, every last one of us would spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ has great claims on God. And we should go to God in prayer, not on the grounds of any goodness in ourselves, but on the grounds of Jesus Christ's claims. Brothers and sisters, we can have the most excellent theology of any Christian in the world. But if we think that because we have good theology, that that demands God to answer our prayers, we are wholly deceived. He answers our prayers because of who we are in Christ on the basis of Christ's goodness and Christ's righteousness, not because of ours. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're tempted to blame others. And so this is what had happened to Habakkuk. But now Habakkuk realizes this. He realizes, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to do but stand here before a just, a holy, and a righteous God and pray that he will do his work. It's interesting that in verses 2 all the way down through the end of chapter 3 in this prayer and this psalm, that Habakkuk only requests two things. The majority of his prayer is filled with what our prayers probably need more of, and, and that's the, the adoration of God. In going to God and talking about who he is and his glory and his splendor, who he is and the things that he's done, who he is and how great and majestic that he is. We see this all throughout the Psalms. We see it so clearly here in Habakkuk's prayer. But oftentimes what you and I are tempted to do is we're tempted to go to God and say, oh, Lord, we love you. You're holy. You're majestic. You're wonderful. Uh, let me tell you this list of 15 things that I need from you today. And we spend the bulk of our time in the things that we need and such little time on talking about how great God is. Now, God doesn't need to hear how great he is. He's not some person in the sky who's just trying to get people to talk about how great he is. But in adoring God and in giving him adoration, what it does is helps us in our prayer life. Because when we understand and believe and know who God is, it drives out all fear and everything else in this life. If we believe that God is holy and just and perfect and righteous, that he's a covenant faithful God, 
that he has promised that he will keep us and protect us, if he has promised that he'll be our sure uh, uh, help in times of trouble, that he'll be our refuge and our strength, that he is our healer, that he is our rock, that he is our banner, whatever it may be, if we believe those things and we confess those things, then when trouble comes in our life, we're not driven to fear, but we're driven more into the majesty of God because we know who he is. So in the entirety of these verses, Habakkuk only asks for two things, and they're right here in verse two. He says, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. And the second, he says, in wrath, remember mercy. It's interesting and important for us to note here that the prophet does not ask God to change his mind. This would be like us waking up tomorrow morning and, and having a sure, a sure word from God that God says, I'm getting ready to send destruction on America. You know, some other nation is going to come in and they're going to take over the country. They're going to destroy your cities. They're going to kill men, women, and children. They're going to carry some of you off into captivity for, for years and years and years, force you to be under slave labor. It's going to be destruction everywhere you look. And for us to say, okay, God, we understand, we trust, we pray two things, Lord. We pray that you would revive your work in the midst of it, and we pray that in your wrath you would remember mercy. Habakkuk doesn't ask God to change his mind. Why? Because he understands that what God is doing is what must happen. He understands that what God is doing must come to pass. The nation of Judah must be chastised. Why? Not out of God's anger, but out of his love. Because what does the scripture tell us? He says, the Lord chasteneth those whom he loves. Parents in the room, when you discipline your children, you do it not because you hate them, but because you love them and because you want what is best for them. God chastises. He disciplines those whom he loves. And God was going to do this work through the nation of Judah. And ultimately, why? Why was God going to do such a great thing? Because God is a God of covenant. God is a God of promise. And what had God promised? All the way back before the foundation of the world, he says, I'm sending my son. And my son will come to redeem my people back to me. My son, the Messiah, is going to come. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected. He's going to be exalted back to the right, right hand in heaven. And how was that Messiah going to come? He's going to come through the nation of Israel. So God is not going to abandon his people. He didn't abandon them in the midst of the desert when they rebelled and they had to wander for 40 years. God's not going to abandon them in the midst of Babylon. As, as horrible as it may be, God is going to do his work. And this is the prayer that the prophet prays. He says, Lord, revive your work. It's renew your work. It means the condition of the people or the church. He says, God, you have made a promise. God, you have made a covenant. And we pray that in the midst of the years, in the timing What's the midst of the years? It's talking about that 70 years when they're going to be in exile, that 70 years when they're going to be in bondage. He said, God, even in the midst of our difficulty, will you continue to do the work that you've promised that you would do? And God did. We see it through Daniel. We see it through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
We see it through so many ways that God moved in the midst of that exile under Nebuchadnezzar when they were in Babylon for those 70 plus years, for those 70 years, we see God continuing to work. And then as they returned back and began the process of rebuilding, God was keeping his work in the midst of them. He was renewing. He was accomplishing his purposes. The prophet's not praying that God would change his mind. He's just saying, Lord, even when it's difficult and hard, will we still be able to see your work being accomplished? Will we still be able to see your hand at work? This is what he's praying for. He's like, don't, he's like, we understand that punishment has to come. We just pray, God, that we would still be able to see your hand at work, still be able to see things going forth. And brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves of this. That as we look around at the world today and we see the wickedness that reigns in our world, We see the idolatry of people pursuing sex and drugs and all these other things as their own gods. We see um, the, the rise of rampant immoral behavior and sexuality in our world, things that are celebrated that are so contrary to the word of God. We have a temptation to say, look at all these evil things that are happening, but we forget that God is still doing his work in the midst of it. The gospel is still going forth. God is still saving people. Nations are still coming to Christ. The gospel is still going forth in some of the darkest places around the world. We have a tendency to look at just what's happening right in front of us, but we forget that God is still doing this. And so we should pray, God, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the times that we're going through, God, continue to allow us to see your truth going forth. He says, God, do this while we're in the time of exile. When the time of the way to the full vengeance of the Babylonians are going to be weighing down on them, God, do what you've already done for countless numbers of people before. Habakkuk calls back the work of the Lord in generations past, and that's really what's covered between verses 3 and 15. He calls back and hearkens back to the days of God bringing the people out of Egypt, of carrying them through the desert. You know, there's such a tendency sometimes to look at Bible stories, and especially as kids, because oftentimes these stories are are dressed up in ways that that we really forget what's being taught here. I mean, think about this. At that time, in the nation of Egypt, largest army in the world, all of these great empires that, that Egypt had built, and God comes in, and through the plagues and through the final, the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh finally relents and lets God's people go. They're marching out of Egypt, millions of them. You know, it's easy to think that you've just got a few hundred Jews here, but no, these are millions of Jewish people marching out of Egypt across the desert, and they come to the Red Sea. That's an impossibility. They don't have any boats. They don't have a bridge. They don't need anything to get across. Yeah, sure, maybe they could walk around, but even if they wanted to do that, all of a sudden they look behind them and here comes Pharaoh and his army. Now, when you're faced with an impossibility like that, what, what, do you, what option do you have? The only option you have is to trust that God's word is true. And so Moses raised the staff and God parted the Red Sea. That's not a fairy tale. It's not a made-up occurrence. God genuinely moved the waters apart so that they walked over not on muddy ground, but on dry ground. 
They walked across to the other side, and as soon as they made it across, the seas crashed back down onto Pharaoh and his armies. That's God's faithfulness to his people. He carried them through the wilderness when they had to wander. They were supposed to go to the promised land. You remember that they were doubtful that they could do it, even though God told them they could. And so God punished them by having to wander in the desert for 40 years. And you remember what he did as they wandered in the desert for 40 years? Their food never ran out. They were never thirsty. Their clothes never wore out. The feet, their, the shoes on their feet never wore out for 40 years. I can't get a pair of shoes to last a year. And here these lasted for 40 Why? Because God had made a covenant with his people that I will keep you. I will protect you. I will do what is necessary to watch over you. All you have to do is read through the Old Testament, the countless number of times that God's people drifted off into idolatry. God, because he loved them, because he had made a covenant with them, he corrected them and brought them back. He did not allow them to escape the punishment. Sometimes he severely punished them, but because he loved them, because he had covenanted with them, he brought them back. And this is what Habakkuk goes through in the rest of chapter three. He's reminding himself of the covenant faithfulness of God, that if God has covenanted with you, he will not break that covenant. The word in the Hebrew is, is hesed. It's, it's a H-E-S-E-D, and it means covenant faithfulness. If God has made a covenant, he will not break it. And God has said, you are my people. I am your God. I will keep you. It did not mean that they would not suffer through difficulties and trials and tribulations. It did not mean that they would not suffer hardships. But he said, in the end, I will keep you because you are my people. So Habakkuk reminds himself of this. He reminds the people of God of this. And isn't it interesting that they take this prayer and they make it into a song that they sing while they are in captivity again, to remind themselves that justice is coming. God delivered his people before, he will do it again. God redeemed his people before, he will do it again. God kept his people before, he will do it again. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. The prophet was certain of the necessity of what had to happen. He knew that wrath had to come. He knew that punishment had to come. But he said in the midst of that, he says, Lord, would you remember your mercy? This again harkens back to that covenant faithfulness. That over and over again, when the people had rebelled, God would punish, but God would bring them to them in his love and in his mercy. Lamentations chapter three, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Exodus chapter 32, verses 10 through 12. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against him and that I may destroy them and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak saying with evil intent he brought them out to kill them? In the mountains and destroy them for the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. That's what God did. God relented in his mercy towards his people because he had covenanted his faithfulness with them. One commentator said, It is due to Yahweh's proofs of covenant faithfulness that we are not consumed. Indeed, his mercies do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. 
The prophet knew that he could not ask God to relent, but he knew that he could ask God for mercy. He said, God, carry us through this. Again, he's not asking God to stop it. He's just asking God, help us to endure it. Help us to be able to cope with it. Help us to be able to walk through what we are experiencing. And brothers and sisters, this needs to be our prayer. That when things are happening around us, we pray, God, help us to do what is necessary. Help us to have the strength to endure. Help us to have the strength to walk through it. Habakkuk here was humbled before the Lord. He was no longer concerned with the sins of others and whether they were more wicked or less wicked than he, but he was concerned with his own place before God. He had nothing to offer. He confessed this reality and placed himself in God's hands because this is the only path, this is the only way of knowing true peace. That when God speaks, we listen, we hear it, and we submit to it. Difficulty was coming, but thanks be to God, victory was on the horizon. And as we look out at our world, we can see that difficulty could be coming. It could be that God chooses to allow our nation, to allow the world to suffer longer in the midst of what we're going through. Could be for five years, could be for 10 years, could be for 100. But brothers and sisters, victory is on the horizon. No matter what happens in this world, we know that victory is coming. God is going to accomplish his perfect work and purposes. And he's doing it through the gospel. He's doing it through us as we proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we go forth and carry his word to the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your instruction. Lord, help us to draw our hearts together and to trust you in the midst of difficulty as Habakkuk did here. It's easy for us to become overwhelmed, to become discouraged, fearful, perhaps even angry. When we see things happening, Lord, that we don't understand, that we can't wrap our minds around, that we feel as unjust or unfair, but Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your sovereignty. Help us to trust your goodness and your faithfulness and your holiness and your righteousness. Lord, to know that nothing happens in this life outside of your divine permission. Whatever may greet us this afternoon, whatever may greet us tomorrow or a year from now is not a surprise to you and only happens because you've allowed it to happen. And if you've allowed it to happen, you will work it for our good. If you've allowed it to happen, it's according to your purpose and your plan. If you've allowed it to happen, Lord, you are doing what is perfectly good. And Lord, help us to trust. Help us to live, as you said here, to live by faith. To remember 
that you have never broken your word, that you have never broken your covenant promise. And Lord, just as you call the nation of Israel out of nothing to something, you have called us out of death into life. You have made that same type of covenant with us. You have called us to be your people and you will not leave us nor forsake us. You will not abandon us by the way. You will keep us and watch us and protect us. Lord, help us to trust more supremely in you. Father, draw our hearts in the midst of difficulty to assure reliance upon your goodness. May we not trust in our own strength. May we not trust in our own abilities. May we not think, Father, that because we hold to a high standard of your word that you owe us something, but realizing that we stand before you with empty hands and that our only hope is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to the table today, may we come, Lord, in all of you, in all that you've done. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.